And this morning we're going to think about Pentecost, and these verses are going to um, shape our thoughts as we think about the Holy Spirit coming and what that means for us as God's people. So let's read John chapter 14, verse 15 to verse 26, and that should be around page 901 of the Pew Bibles, but it'll also be on the screen before you. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because that you, because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the, my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the, world, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Amen. And may God bless to us the reading of his holy word this morning. Pentecost. We often think from the verses and acts when we think about Pentecost, but this morning I want to spend just a little bit of time looking at Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit and, and let us glean from what Jesus teaches us here about who the Holy Spirit is and, and, and what that means for us. And we'll jump around a wee bit as well just to hear some other uh, verses in the Bible that will help us maybe understand a little bit better this morning about who the Holy Spirit is. Um, I always find it fascinating that um, we don't really hear the Holy Spirit spoken about much within uh, church circles, especially within the Church of Scotland or more Reformed circles, because we don't really know what to do with Him. We don't really know what to do. We can't really um, articulate and explain Him or even predict what He is going to do. Whereas we can take a passage, we can pull it apart, we can look at the Greek, we can find the reasons and the context as to why this has been said in that way, and we can learn from it, and that is wonderful and it is great, but actually as the church, we should be word and spirit. We should be word and spirit. And I hope this morning that as we journey through this, that we will see maybe just a wee bit more this morning about who the Holy Spirit is and how we don't need to be afraid of Him, because He's the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I think actually we've maybe um, become a bit unsure and maybe even a bit scared of the Holy Spirit because of the title that we often used to give him, the Holy Ghost. 
When we hear ghost, that's, there's a context to that. It automatically makes us think, oh, I don't know if I want to go near that part of God or that person of God. I'll just stick to the father and son bit. But actually, what we're going to see this morning is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was necessary, vital, and important. And if we don't have the Holy Spirit in our ministry here, we'd as well to shut up shop and go home. Jesus has been urging his followers to believe in him. We see that in verse 11. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Jesus points to the things that he has done. You've seen me at work. You've heard what I've said. I've said that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. But even if you're unsure about just my words, look at my ministry. Look at the amazing things that I have done. Look at the miracles that I have done. Look at how you've been with me. You've spent time with me. You've seen me feed the hungry. You've seen me raise the dead. You've seen me give a sight back to the blind. I've made the lame walk. I've cleansed the lepers. If you don't believe me for my word, look at my works. Look at the amazing ministry that I've had, Jesus is saying. And all that, all that things, all of my uh, works that I've done, as well as the teaching that I've given, you should testify and point to that I am who I say I am. That I am in the Father and the Father's in me. That I am God, Jesus is saying. And then Jesus gives this most amazing statement on the back of speaking about his works. He says in verses 12 and 14, and the words will appear on the screen before you. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You've seen me do these amazing works, Jesus says. Then Jesus gives his church, he gives his followers a promise. But greater than these you will do. So I ask you a question this morning. Where is the greater? Are you seeing it in your life? Are you seeing it in our church? Was Jesus wrong? No, Jesus wasn't wrong. But why are we not seeing it here? Why are we not seeing in the church of Scotland the greater? And Jesus, he's not just speaking about the wonderful teachings he gave. He's actually speaking about his miracles. The amazing things that he did that testified to the power of God at work in him and who he was. Greater, he says, works than these he will do. He being his followers. Now, some would say that this is exclusively speaking um, to the, the, the apostles or Jesus' close uh, disciples, that actually it was for a time and it stopped with the apostles, but I don't agree with that. Because we see throughout the letters in the New Testament that actually there's this um, call that, that the apostle Paul gives to not just the leaders in the church, but the, the body of Christ in effect. Saying actually, you know, you'll speak in tongues, speak in tongues, do these things, the, the healings. He, he speaks about them, those things in his letters. So it's not just to the apostles that I would say Jesus is speaking to here, but his followers, his church. And I believe that God still longs to be, wants to be, and is active. And he wants to do amazing things. He wants to do great works that testify to his power. We're not meant to just convince or argue people into heaven. But actually, our lives 
should testify to the power of God at work in and through us in this place. And I don't just mean metaphorical works or metaphorical signs and wonders, because we like to do that, don't we? We play the safe game. Metaphorically, you know, Jesus fed the 5,000, but, you know, we, we, we feed people by our teaching. Yes, we do, absolutely. But actually, miracles should be taking place because God is still powerful. He's still at work. He's still active. But actual miracles you're speaking about, that things that, that don't make sense humanly, things that we cannot achieve in and of ourselves humanly. But how is that possible? How is it possible that the followers of Jesus, me and you, little old Sandy Hills Parish Church in the east end of Glasgow, how is it possible that greater things we will do? Friends, we are meant to, and I long to, see signs and wonders accompany the preaching and declaration of God's word. But how? How is that even possible? Pentecost. It's possible because of Pentecost. What is Pentecost? Well, some would say that it's the birth of the church, but I don't really like that because it makes it sound like the church just started in Acts chapter 2. But actually, um, we see the, the church being purchased for by the blood of Jesus, um, ransomed by the blood of Jesus at the cross. So really what, what I think a better way of saying about Pentecost is it, it is the commissioning of the church. It is the empowering of the church, that God has given his power to the church so that the church can fulfill her God-given mandate and mission. It is where God pours out, this is Pentecost chapter 2 of Acts, it is where God pours out his Holy Spirit upon his people, his church, to empower her, to enable her to do all that he has called her to do and to be all that he has called her to be. And who is her? Who is the church? Well, we've thought about it in our prayer earlier on. Again, when we say church, we often think of a building with four walls, and often it's got really uncomfortable pews and a lovely church bell sitting on top of a nice wee spire, but that's not what the church is. The church is the bride of Christ, those who belong to Jesus, his followers. This is what Jesus says in verse 15 of John chapter 4. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you ever wonder who the church is and what she looks like, John chapter 15, uh, 14 verse 15 gives you a wonderful little insight into who the church is and what we are meant to do and meant to be. We're meant to be people who love Christ and who obey him. Now you can't have one and not the other. You can't opt for one of these and think, you know, I'll take the love part and I'll, I'll, I'll reject all the other bits and I'll just do my own thing and, 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 and not follow what Jesus is saying. Or you can't go, do you know what, I'll, I'll follow the rules and I'll take all these things, but actually my heart is quite cold towards Jesus. You can't, be, you can't be like that. The two go together. These aren't opposites. You can't say you love Christ and then continue to live in sin. See what the way Jesus says it. It goes together. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It is a sign of our love for Christ that we live in God's ways. And this isn't legalistic. This isn't about following a bunch of rules. But this is about love. 
It's about abiding in Christ, about being in relationship with Jesus. It's about loving Him. And out of the overflow of our love, we follow His commandments because they are a delight to us. Read the Psalms. Those who are in relationship, those who abide in Christ, it is a joy to follow Him and to obey Him. I think sadly, people think that love and obedience, that, that they're opposites, but actually they're, they're not. The two, they, they go together. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. For Christ, obedience to Christ, friends, is the highest form of worship that we can have. It's all good and well singing songs with our lips, but if our heart posture isn't bent towards him and, and, and surrendering to him and his ways, then actually the words that we're saying, they, they, they mean nothing. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's no place for pride or lust or arrogance or self-importance or gossip or anger in the follower of Jesus. But actually, we're going to be a people who follow Christ and his word. And, and what we do when we do that is we show God that, that, that we have a love for him. It is, it is the outworking of our love. You want to show Jesus you love him, get to know his word and live it out. Those who abide in Christ honor his ways. And note the distinction that Jesus makes in verse 17. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And we'll speak about that with you and in you in a few moments. But look at the distinction Jesus makes. He, he points to two categories here. There are those who love Christ and follow his commandments. And then there's the world. There, Jesus is the one that makes those distinctions. It's not me and it's not the church. It's Jesus himself who said that. We, we can't have a foot in, in both camps. We, we're either... A follower of Jesus who loves him and seeks to live our lives after him. Yes, we make mistakes. Yes, we fall, fall and we slip up. But we love him and we want to live lives for him and sanctified lives that continue to pursue holiness and the things of God or we're off the world. There's no in-between. I used to say when I first started here that I wanted to get on big writing behind me. There's no fence here. There's no fence in the gospel for you to sit on. You're either saved or you're not. You're either a follower of Jesus or you're not. But yet we think that there's this imaginary fence that, you know, I'll sit in it now and, and just before I die, hopefully I'll fall into the, the, the yes camp and I'll, and I'll then be a follower of Jesus. Friends, don't play with your eternity like that. There's no fence to sit on. We either follow Jesus and we're lovers of Jesus and we're people of Jesus or we are the world. So don't miss who Jesus is speaking to here, verse 16. He's speaking to his church, his bride. This isn't a universal statement that God is making that I'm going to pour out my Holy Spirit on every, absolutely every single person. No. I will ask the Father and he will give you. Who's the you? It's not the world. It's the followers of Christ. It is the church. It's God's people. And if you're in Christ this morning, you are the you here. You're the you. 
That Jesus has sent his Holy Spirit for you. To to his followers, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. As we read on in these verses in John chapter 14, we read of Jesus telling his followers that there's going to be a day where I'm no longer going to be here physically anymore. You're not going to be able to see me with your eye like you have been. You're not going to be able to embrace me like you have been because I'm not going to physically be here anymore. I'm going back to my father. He was born, he lived, he died, he rose again, but then he would ascend. He would return to sit at the right hand of his father, signifying the accomplishment of all he'd come and set out to do. And in the ascension, we see his coronation as king. But what about us? Jesus is returning back to heaven. What about us? What about his followers? Well, he gives them this assurance. Although I'm going back to my father, don't worry. Put yourselves in the disciples' shoes for just a moment. Could you imagine what that must have felt like? Could you imagine having your, your teacher, your closest friend, the, 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 part, the, the one in the group who is the, the real powerhouse, he did everything, he, he did these amazing things and they depended upon him, they'd followed him, they'd seen him at work, they'd seen his ministry, they'd heard his amazing teaching, they'd seen his incredible power and then all of a sudden they hear that actually he's not going to be here much longer. Could you imagine what that must have felt like? The the anxiety that that would have began to um, induce within the disciples. The fear. What are we going to do? What do you mean you're going away? You've only been doing ministry here for three years with us. What's going to happen? But this was always the plan. This was always God's intended way. That the Son would ascend to heaven but that we wouldn't be left by ourselves. And Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels, it's better that I go so that the Helper, the Holy Spirit, can come. We hear lots in the church life about the prophecies of of Jesus in the Old Testament, about how we we read of um, Jesus' coming in the Old Testament before it happens, and these amazing things that that take place, and the place he'd be born, and how he'd be born, and these wonderful prophecies that happened hundreds of years prior. But so too it is with the the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. We we read of his his coming in in a different way before it actually happens. And, and one of the ones that's really well known to us is in Joel chapter 2, where um, we see this prophecy about the Holy Spirit being poured out upon all um, of God's sons and daughters, and they would dream dreams, and they'd have had visions, and, and um, there'd be amazing signs and wonders that would take place. It's in Joel chapter 2. That's one of the, the main ones, and it's actually the, the one that, that Peter stands on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and he stands and he preaches from that passage, and, and he shares about what is happening, what is taking place as the Holy Spirit came as the sound of the rushing wind comes, as they begin to speak in in tongues that weren't their own, as they see these tongues of fire resting above their head, rightly so, the other people who are surrounded are a little bit confused as to what's happening. But Peter's like, don't worry. God has already told us this is going to take place. If you read Joel chapter 2, you'll know all about it. Now let's pause for a second, because when we say that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, it makes it sound a little bit like 
that up until Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit hadn't been here. And that's not true. The Holy Spirit we see is active in creation. God's Spirit is hovering. We see the Holy Spirit at work throughout the Old Testament, resting upon people and, and, and doing things. And we actually see Jesus, if we read verse 17 here in chapter 14 of John, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit was already dwelling with them. God's Spirit was already at work. But the distinction, and there's a real change at Pentecost, and we need to note this, that no longer would God's Spirit just dwell with us, but would fill us. And this is so significant because there's now no longer a thought about a, a temporary kind of resting that happens. We see in places in the Old Testament where God's Spirit comes and rests upon a person, a specific person for a specific moment. If you think of Second Samuel, King Saul, God's Spirit comes and rests upon him to, to help him in, this, in, in that time. But then the Holy Spirit comes off him. We see elsewhere in the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit rests on different people at different moments. But the difference at Pentecost and in the New Testament is that the Holy Spirit is poured out on and in all God's people. No longer does the Holy Spirit just dwell with us and rest on us at different moments, but now we are temples of the living God. The Holy Spirit has filled us as God's people. And this is so significant because, like I said, it's no longer about a temporary resting, but an eternal dwelling. We didn't, we didn't dwelt. The Holy Spirit fills God's people. You yourself, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a temple of the living God. And as the Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost, and as he fills the people of God, doesn't just rest upon one or two of them, but he fills God's people, we see something that is intrinsically linked with the coming of the Holy Spirit, and that is about salvation, about being saved. We see in the New Testament, we, we, we've, we've thought about it as well, about the activity of the Holy Spirit, about how he is so active in our salvation that he is the one that kind of brings us to God and, and regenerates our hearts. And what's really interesting is that about Pentecost, Pentecost happened in the middle of what Jews called the Feast of harvest or the feast of weeks. That's when Pentecost took place in Acts chapter 2. And this feast of harvest is mentioned numerous times in the Old Testament. You can find it in Exodus 23 and 24. And this harvest was an early harvest that happened in between mid-May and, and early June. So there was a, a natural harvest that took place around Pentecost that they would celebrate. But actually what we see on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out during this feast of harvest is any surprise that we read of over 3,000 souls being saved? Is it any surprise that we read of in Joel's prophecy in, in chapter 2 about after it speaks about the signs and wonders that Joel says, and all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Holy Spirit is in the business of getting people saved. He's active. He takes the foolish words that I preach Sunday by Sunday and he, he takes it to your heart and he touches your heart with it. 
longing for you to come to him, come to Christ. And at Pentecost, we see souls being saved, the anointing of God upon all his people. And beautifully, what we have with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is a visible sign of God's seal on all that Christ has done. Let's turn back to Ephesians for a moment. We've been in Ephesians a lot over these last number of weeks, but it really is a wonderful letter, and I would um, encourage you to go home and study it and read it. In Ephesians 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 13, we read that, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. In ancient times, a seal was like a signature or, or was used to validate and testify ownership legally. You see, friends, when we come to faith in Christ, we're engrafted or we're adopted into God's family. We're adopted into the family of God. We didn't belong because of sin, but because of Jesus and faith in him, we're adopted into the family of God. And think about any child who is adopted, and their parents receive adoption papers to validate that this child who was an orphan or who had no parents, that they now belong to this set of parents, that they are now a child to these parents. And that, that paper is like a seal or um, it's used to prove the, the validity of that child now belonging to this family. And friends, that's a little bit like what we see in the day of Pentecost. That actually it's not adoption papers we get as the people of God, but God seals our engrafting and our adoption into his family through faith in Christ by filling you with the Holy Spirit. He fills you with his Holy Spirit and he is the guarantee of your inheritance that is to come. He is the seal of all that Christ has done in your life. He is like the proof that you are saved. That's why we look for the fruit of the Spirit once someone comes to Christ. Because they're then filled by the Holy Spirit. And very quickly, as we look to close this morning, Jesus tells us in verse 16 about this other helper who will come. Now, the word helper, or sometimes it's used as comforter, um, is an interesting word because the original word that would be used here in, is paraclete. And in the Old English, this word paraclete was translated as comfort. Why is that? Well, in Old English, comfort meant with strength, with strength. The word has changed and, and kind of um, changed a little bit in its meaning. We think of comfort, we think of a nice comfy couch or solace or kind of a warm, cuddly, fluffy type of thing, but that's not what comfort meant in Old English. It meant with strength. So here we have this promised one who would come, who was another paraclete, who would clothe God's people with power and strength. He wouldn't just cuddle them to heaven he would empower them with the strength and power and the equipping of God. Don't you find it fascinating that the people who were waiting in the upper room, they already had all the facts. 
They already knew that Jesus came and died and for their sins and then rose again. They already knew the gospel stories, but still they had to wait. They had the knowledge, but they had to wait. Why? Because they had to wait for the empowering. They had to wait for the equipping. And I can I suggest to you as we wrap up this morning that as God's people here in Scotland, maybe even in Sandy Hills, that we have become too dependent upon head knowledge. The disciples had the knowledge. They knew the facts. They had to wait for the Spirit to come, though, to empower them and equip them. I can't convince anyone to become a Christian. I can't argue you into heaven. I can't convince you to be saved. No matter how eloquently I explain the gospel to you, I can't convince you. What you need is not convincing, but converting. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. That's why we need him here. People can't be saved without him. I can't convince you to become a Christian, but the Holy Spirit can convert you. He can touch your heart. I can't convince you to live a more godly life. I can teach you as to what, how God wants you to live as a Christian, but I can't convince you to live in the way God wants you. But the Holy Spirit can transform you and burden your heart and sanctify you. And my prayer is that we as a church enter a season where we begin to see the Holy Spirit move in power, where we become alive in the Spirit, that we become a church, yes, who knows the gospel, who can articulate it well, and who can put up good defenses and, and be able to um, eloquently explain the gospel. That's important, absolutely, to be able to teach. But let us be word and spirit. Let us become a people that where our communi community begins to see glimpses into eternity in how we live our lives here. But friends, we cannot do this on our own. I think if we're honest, we've tried. I think we've tried as a church to do this in our own strength. But we can't. And I think God's been gracious. And God has been very gracious and his mercy has been there. And even in our foolish endeavors, he's graciously touched people's lives. But I know my own heart. And I know that there's times where I become too dependent upon Norman and being able to try and explain and articulate good sermons for you that I actually probably need a little bit more emphasis and power from the Holy Spirit in them. Do I give them the space? Not all the time. But we need to. Let us be a people who allow the Holy Spirit to minister and touch hearts and change lives because we can't do that. That's not our job. That's his. Let us become a people who are utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit as he enables and empowers us to do and be all that God has called us to do and called us to be. Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Come, Holy Spirit, come.
give you space. We ask that in this moment that you hover and that you refill those of us who need a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our lives. May you find open hearts in this place. May we be a people who are utterly dependent upon you and your power. We thank you for well-constructed sermons and we know the importance of them. But Lord, never let this place become about head knowledge. But let us be a people who live and move in the power of the Holy Spirit. For you've given us another helper. You have given us the one that will clothe us in power from on high. Strengthen us and enable us to be who you've called us to be in this moment, in this time, in this community. And may we see souls saved. May we see the great harvest. Lord, you tell us that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Raise up laborers in this place, we pray, O Lord. Send the laborers, we pray, O Lord. And may we see people come to faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. For we ask these things in your precious name. Amen.